0: Today we're continuing our study of the book of Romans. We have been looking throughout the fall at the book of Romans, and we made it to the end of chapter 6 of the book of Romans. And today we're going to be picking up at Romans chapter 7, verse 1. And we're just going to be looking at verse 1 down to verse 6. So if you would take your Bibles and turn there with me. And I'll say this right at the outset of us looking at this particular passage. When I was preparing the message this week and looking at this passage and uh, praying about the things that, that I felt that the Lord wanted me to share today in regard to what's here in this section of His Word. One of the things that uh, really stood out to me is how theological this section is. Now, obviously, all of Scripture is theological, but there are certain portions of Scripture that when you look at it, you can immediately see an application to your day-to-day life. And this is one of those portions of Scripture that that application might not stand out to you right away. It's not the type of Scripture that you would look at. Put it this way, it's not the type of Scripture that I see bumper stickers of, or greeting cards of, or really hear quoted ever. But it's significant, and I'll do my best to show us why it's significant and how it applies to our walk with Christ, and even how it should apply to just our emotional health as we walk with Christ. So if you would, Romans chapter 7, starting with verse 1, this is what it says. "'Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage.' For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to take a look at this portion of Scripture together today. And Lord, we recognize that as we look at a portion of Scripture like this, uh, Lord, we know that this isn't necessarily the type of Scripture that gets frequently quoted or is the type of thing that, that many of us have ever taken the time to commit to memory, but when we dig into what this portion of Scripture is communicating, it's extremely significant for us. And so, Lord, we pray that we would understand a little bit more clearly why this is significant, why this matters And we pray, Lord, that our study of this portion of Your Word would impact the nature of our walk and our relationship with You. And so we commit this time to You now, and we thank You for this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Saw a video just the other day. It was a a video that a friend shared with me, and it was actually a video of a dog. And the dog in this video, it was a dark brown medium-sized dog I was trying to figure out what breed of dog it might have been or maybe if it was a mix of a couple different breeds I wasn't really able to figure out what kind of dog it was but when the dog was first spotted and there's some footage of this in this video that he showed me when the dog was first seen it was clear that the dog had either been abandoned or maybe had never been adopted as a pet in the first place. It could be seen walking uh, just along the, the, the wooded outskirts of a particular neighborhood, and it didn't seem hostile or anything like that. And so people were trying to connect with this dog, uh, you know, get the dog's attention, but the dog would do different things and try and avoid people as best as it could. It tried to avoid human interaction, and they would see it living on the outskirts of their neighborhood in some of those wooded sections. And when you looked at the dog, the dog was in very rough shape. It looked unhealthy. It looked unwell. It had very little hair, and the hair that it did have, it was matted down, and it looked very unhealthy. It almost looked, in some parts of the video, like the dog was caked in mud, but I actually think that that was just some infections and things like that that the dog was experiencing on the outside of its body. The dog was also very skinny, so when you looked at the dog, you could count, literally, you could count every rib. You could count every rib. You could see every single rib. You could also see very vividly the joints in the knees and, and things like that. Uh didn't have very much m- uh, muscle mass, but finally somebody was able to catch it. And when they finally were able to catch it, the dog looked like it was going to die. It, I think it had probably just gotten to the spot where it had given up trying to run from people, it had given up even trying to care for itself. Uh, it couldn't even hold itself up very well at that point and it looked like it was just ready to die It looked like it had lost the will to live and again They had taken video of this entire process But in the midst of all of this once they finally got the dog uh, There was a kind woman who took a liking to this particular dog She actually named it hercules in the video And uh, instead of the dog wandering outside alone She took the dog into her home and she began feeding it. And she began caring for it. And at regular intervals throughout the day, in addition to the food she was giving to this dog, she would, I think she said in the video, like every little bit she'd make sure that the dog had fresh water and she would encourage the dog to drink a little bit more. And at first it didn't look like anything was about to change. It looked like the dog was staying exactly the same. Its eyes were starting to be a little bit distant, just kind of that distant look you can you can see uh, in an animal when it kind of looks like they're possibly about to die. But then the dog surprised her and one day it stood on its own. It got up and it started moving around and it looked like it was learning to walk for the first time, even though it wasn't, but it was it was walking and then all of a sudden its hair began growing back and then it went through a, a spot where it started to rapidly grow back and it was amazing how different the dog looked without the hair and with the hair it looked like a totally different animal and a strong bond began to develop between this woman and the dog. This animal, had it, it was nearly dead, it had given up on its, its will to survive but now it was thriving because it was loved and it was cared for and it was convinced that it belonged to someone who loved it and it was i one of the the most touching parts of the video was when the the woman would come home and she would open the door and you would see how excited the dog was to see her and how relieved the dog was to see her because you could tell that that dog knew that it belonged now I'm bringing that up because we're going to be talking about belonging as we look at this portion of Scripture from Romans chapter 7. We belong to someone who loves us. Before we came to know Christ, we were unhealthy, we were without hope, we were convinced that we needed to fend for ourselves, and we were resigned to the fate of an outcast. We're just living out on our own without hope. But now Christ has redeemed us. He's cleansed us from our sin. He's given us new life through faith in Him. He's given us His name. And He's given us a permanent place in His family. In Christ, we know that we belong. And we're relieved from our attempts to try and, to, uh, to try and survive on our own. And when you look at the verses we just read from Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, In that portion of Scripture, it explains this idea as well as some additional details of the benefits that those who belong to Christ are blessed with. And one of the things that it tells us here that's significant is that we've been released from our bondage to the old law. Now, let me reread those first three verses. This is what they state, and this is why they're significant. We'll look at that as well. But it says we've been released from our bondage to the old law this way. In verse 1 it says, an adulteress. Now let me pause there for a second. So Paul here is speaking about law. And in the if you remember several weeks ago when we were looking in the book of Romans, you can see that this is a repeated theme that the apostle Paul brings up. He speaks about the old covenant law, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. That's what he's speaking of here in these verses, the law given to the children of Israel under the old covenant. Now, if you've ever read through the Old Testament law, and I hope that you have, but if you've never done so, I'd highly encourage you to do so. It's the first five books of the Bible. And it, and by the way, it's the start of a new year, so what are a lot of people doing right now at the start of a new year? They're committing to read through the Scriptures. And what always happens when people commit to read through the Scriptures in order? It's predictable. We all know what happens, right? You get through Genesis, and then you get through Exodus, and then you start Leviticus, and you're like, Good enough. You know what? Good enough. I think I got the gist. Good enough. People always give up in Leviticus, but I would challenge you to read through the first five books of the Bible and see the Mosaic Law and see the details and the things that are referenced there because there's a lot of requirements, there's a lot of regulations, there's a lot of pivotal stories that, that set the foundation for the theology of the entire Bible. And when you look at the Old Testament law, in addition to the regulations and requirements, you could also see that there are ceremonial aspects to the Old Covenant law. There are governmental aspects to the law. There are moral aspects. There are spiritual aspects to it, spiritual requirements. You could see all those things outlined as you go through the Mosaic law. And why is that all outlined? And why is that all structured? And why is that all explained? Well, one of the things that we learn about God when we see how He creates and how He operates, is that God is not chaotic. He's not chaotic. He's a God of order. He established order and structure in the universe. He established order and structure for His people. But He also made sure to demonstrate to them in very convincing fashion that as best as His people try, that as best as we try, we could never keep His holy law perfectly. And if you take that challenge and read through those first five books of the Old Covenant, I think you'll see that very quickly. Ask yourself, could I keep this perfectly? And the answer, obviously, I'll spoil the ending. The answer is, no, you could not. You could try, but you would fail like everyone who's come before you. God's law, what it actually does is it exposes our sin nature to us. It shows us that by nature we are people who struggle with sin. When he tells us in his in his law not to covet, what do we tend to do? Tend to covet, right? There's a part of us that responds by rebelling against whatever God says. So he says, don't covet, and what do we do? We covet, right? He tells us, have no other gods before me, and what do we do? Well, we respond by worshiping creation or worshiping ourselves or worshiping something else, right? He gave us the law. We broke every requirement. And therefore, if nothing else changed, if there was nothing else to that story, if that's where the story ended, we would stand accused and condemned before him as lawbreakers as long as that law is in effect. But is that law still in effect? And do we still stand before him condemned? This is what Paul is trying to get at here as he's setting up these thoughts, as he's talking about these things, and why this is actually significant for us to wrestle with. So to help us to understand the nature of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf regarding the law, Paul uses a very familiar concept, a very familiar example that's that's the ideal descriptor to describe this kind of relationship. He He talks about marriage, brings up this idea of marriage as he's trying to illustrate what's happened in regard to our relationship with the Old Testament law. Marriage matters to God. Marriage serves as a powerful example of the love of Christ for the church. By the way, that's why Satan hates your marriage. That's why Satan hates my marriage. That's why Satan hates every marriage. He is enraged by those who honor the practice of marriage according to the design that God has given us because it's a devastating reminder to him of the grace and love of God, and he does everything he can to try and damage that visible reminder. And of the things on this earth that serve as powerful, visible reminders of the love of Christ for the church, Scripture tells us that marriage stands out. It stands out as a visible example of the love of Christ for the church. Now, biblical marriage, we would all admit, I'm sure, or maybe most of us would admit, uh, that biblical, biblical marriage has been under assault from different directions for multiple decades in our culture. It's hard to not admit that. You know, if you're, if you're somebody that looks at what scripture s- speaks about and teaches, it's hard to not admit the fact that culturally speaking, marriage is something that is not valued the same way that God values it. I was actually chatting, this was probably about a couple years now, but my wife and I were invited to uh, a friend's house. He'd invited several friends over and uh, we were invited just to all bring our kids and all bring dessert. And so, um, you know, we all did that. And one of the guys that was invited to come was another friend of ours who is a, a, he's a Bible professor. He's also a theology professor, but before he did that, he served for a group of years as a pastor. And so he and I were talking about various aspects of pastoral ministry. And one of the subjects that came up was officiating for weddings. And so we were talking about how did how do you do things? How do I do things? We were talking about things like that. But he made a comment about uh, marriage and about the marriage ceremony itself that I thought was helpful to hear. It was a great reminder, and I liked the way he phrased it. But it stood out to me, and he said, he said, it amazes me. So this is his perspective after officiating for many, many weddings. He says, it amazes me that people are so casual about abandoning their vows. That's what he said. He said, it amazes me that people are so casual about abandoning their vows. And he followed it up by saying this. He says, don't they realize that they're making these vows before God himself? And yet there's such a casual treatment to abandoning these vows. Well, I say that because when you look at what Paul says in these opening verses, in the context of marriage, Paul stated that, and I'll just quote him here, he says, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So when were the requirements of of a marriage covenant no longer binding, according to what this Scripture says and what other Scriptures clarify as well? Well, they're no longer binding if one of the parties dies. But if someone abandons their marriage for someone else while their spouse is living, the Scripture reminds us that that person is then committed adultery. And while marital adultery is certainly tragic, it's extremely tragic, there's an even greater form of adultery that comes before that. What comes before something like that? Well, in multiple scriptures, the Lord cautions us not to have hearts that commit what's called spiritual adultery. Now think about that. This is a hard concept to want to even wrestle with, and I doubt that this is the type of thing that when you woke up this morning, you, you, you thought, hey, let's go to church. I hope the pastor's speaking about spiritual adultery, right? I know that that's not the type of subject that any of us jump up and down about because I think it's a convicting subject. It's a convicting subject for me, and I hope it's a convicting subject for you because it's something that every single one of us wrestles with and it's something that every single one of us, by nature, has been guilty of. And because we've all been guilty of it, it's not something that we like to talk about. But what's spiritual adultery? Well, spiritual adultery occurs any time we're unfaithful to the Lord. If we just want to phrase it very simply and succinctly, any time I've been unfaithful to the Lord, or any time you've been unfaithful to the Lord, or any any believer has been unfaithful to the Lord, what are we doing? We're committing spiritual Adultery, And what that means is it's, it happens anytime we give our allegiance, the allegiance of our heart, to a false god or a false gospel. And none of us could claim that we have never done that. Because even if we've only done it in a small way, we've still done it, and it still breaks the Lord's heart. Consider what the Lord tells us about spiritual adultery. There are, by the way, many examples of it in Scripture, but let me just give us two. One is from Jeremiah 3, and it says, Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. And then in James chapter 4, verse 4, it says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, what are those scriptures, along with many others, encouraging us to do? They're encouraging us to be men and women who are faithful to the Lord in every context, to have no other God before Him. And here's how this plays out in your life and in my life. Where do you go when you're depressed? Or where do you go when you're sad? Or where do you go when you're feeling pain that you're trying to soothe in some way? Are you convinced that Christ is the solution to your pain? Or do you go in some other direction that's unhealthy and unwise? Because if you go in some other direction that's unhealthy and unwise, what you're what you're effectively saying is, here is where I tend to commit spiritual adultery. Here is where I struggle to be faithful to the Lord. Here is where I'm convinced that something else other than Jesus has greater power to soothe my heart when I'm in pain. And that's what the Apostle Paul's talking about and illustrating here as he's talking about this idea of a covenant. But let me segue from that just to reiterate the fact that obviously adultery is a big deal to God, so clearly it would be a big deal to God if we were unfaithful to Him in regard to His law. And that's the type of thing Paul's talking about here in this passage, saying that would not be a trivial matter. But as this chapter from Romans reveals... A death has occurred. So he's saying, you know, what, what, what um, completes or ends a marriage covenant? Well, when one of the parties dies, the living party is released from, that, from their obligations. And here the Scripture reveals to us that a death has occurred that has released us from our bondage to the Old Testament law that we didn't have the capacity to keep, that we kept failing at. We've been released from it, but while we've been released from it, we've actually been enabled to bear fruit for God. Isn't that a fascinating concept? Look at what we're shown in Romans chapter 7, verse 4, as it speaks about the fact that we are enabled to bear fruit for God. So Paul develops this thought, and he clarifies it here a little bit more. In verse 4 he says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So when Jesus came to this earth, consider the earthly ministry of Christ for just a moment. He came to this earth to accomplish multiple things in a particular order. So because we are lawbreakers by nature, right, you know, lawbreakers with a sin nature from birth, He came to this earth to keep the law perfectly for us without sinning. So Jesus kept the requirements of the law perfectly for us without sinning. Because we deserved condemnation, because we deserved death because of our sin, He took our condemnation on Himself when He died in our place on the cross. That's what He did for us because we've been overshadowed by death and defeat. He rose from the grave and He shared His victory over sin, Satan, and death with us so that we never need to go through life fearing death again. It doesn't have the power over us that it once had. Now, as descendants of Adam, the first man, we were united to Adam in his sin. As his descendants, we're united to him in his sin. But now, if we trust in Jesus Christ, if we confess Christ as our Lord, we are united to Christ by faith. We're united to him in his life. We're united to him in his death. We're united to him in his resurrection. That's significant for us. Consider for a second what it tells us in the book of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. It says, "...making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Through faith in Christ we're united to Him in His life, in His death, and in His resurrection." So when Christ died... Think about this in a very personal way because it matters for you. When Christ died, we died too because we're united to Him in His death. And what the Scripture tells us is that at that moment, our bondage to the requirements of the Mosaic Law, it died as well. Just like a marriage covenant comes to completion when one of the parties dies, We died in Christ when Christ was crucified. We're united to Him. And therefore our bondage, Paul is saying, to the requirements of the Mosaic law died as well. So what he's talking about here in Romans chapter 7 verse 4. So now what's happened is, since we're also united to Christ in His resurrection, we're raised to new life through our union with Christ, and we're supernaturally enabled to live a fruitful life. Meaning, we can bear the fruit of righteousness for God's glory because we're united to Jesus. You and I, if we trust in Christ, we are united to Him and can bear fruit that glorifies God. Think about what Jesus said in John chapter 15. In verse 5 of John 15, He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in Me and I in him, he it is that bears much Fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So our union with Christ, what's the result of this union with Christ? It's fruit that comes from your life and my life that honors Christ. Fruit that comes from your life and my life that honors God the Father. Through this union with Christ, as Christ enables us to bear this kind of fruit, And it's his desire that we bear this kind of fruit. So let me ask this in a personal way as we're thinking about these statements. Because I know that a lot of this here, when you look at this, it's easy when you get to a portion of Scripture like this to maybe in some ways kind of get lost in the weeds of theology a little bit without making these things applicable to our day-to-day lives. So our goal today isn't to just win a trivia competition about the significance of the law or the nature of where you know Scripture talks about some of these things. We also want to understand what Christ was trying to communicate to us in the sense of how do you live this sort of thing out? Meaning, like what does it look like to bear fruit for God? So let me ask it this way. What do you expect? I, I'm sure you have goals for this year. I have goals for this year. You probably have goals for this year. I usually set a list of things. In fact, there's some things that I've been writing down. Things that I'm telling myself I'm gonna eat and not eat. We'll see how long I keep that. I'll give myself two weeks. Um, you know, we've all got like this agenda, right? We've all got this thought, like, this is what my year's gonna look like. This is what my life's gonna look like. Well, what do you expect God to do through your life? So we could ask that question in a long-term sense. We could also ask in a short-term sense. So let's ask it in the long-term sense first. What do you expect God to do through your life over the course of however many decades He blesses you with? Now, what do you expect God to do through your life over the course of this year, just this year? Now let's dial it down even more. What do you expect God to do through your life just this week? Or at the start of a new week, what do you expect God to do through your life this week? Do you think He wants to do something meaningful through your life? Or do you consider yourself maybe just an extra in his cast of main characters? Right? Are you just a you can think you're just some fringe player to God or something like that? What do you what do you think your reaction would be? If at the end of your earthly life, the Lord tells you that He was specifically using you to demonstrate His heart to specific people at specific times so that they would experience His salvation too as He testified through you, through your lips, through your life? Do you think that would be encouraging to hear? Or what if the character that the Lord has been developing in you was the tool that he chose to utilize to allow someone else to see what it looks like when his tr- transformative power is at work in the life of somebody else. What if, like, that, just the transformation that he's causing you to experience as you walk with him, what if that's the very visible testimony that someone else will observe that finally helps them to see the kind of transformation that God desires to do in a life? What if that's through your specific Life that God wants that to be seen. What if the well-timed word of encouragement that He spoke through you was the testimony that, that He intended to lift up a hurting brother or a hurting sister at just the right time? What if that was through you He intended to do that and did do that? Through your union with Christ you are being supernaturally equipped to bear that kind of fruit for God. And more. Right? There's a lot of other things we could also list. But it's that type of stuff that the Lord desires to do through your life and through my life as we are united by faith to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And in conjunction with that, you know, as we're talking about this idea of bearing fruit, we're given the opportunity, we're given the privilege to serve God in a new way. And it's a new way that we couldn't naturally have done. You're given a way, you're given the ability by the Lord to serve Him in a new way. And what the Scripture tells us in verses 5 and 6 is that we can now serve in the way of the Spirit. Well, what does that look like? These are the last two verses we're going to look at today. But look at verse 5 and verse 6. This is what they state. It says, For while we were living in the flesh... So, by the way, typically when the scripture is referring to living in the flesh, it's using that as a contrast to this idea of living in the spirit. So it's saying when you were basically practicing life by the dictates of your sinfulness, right? When you were just living in your sin. So it says in verse 5, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Years ago I had, and I I just had this job, it was a secondary job. Uh, I had it for a very short season, but it was a, a job in an office environment. And I think I only served in that capacity for, it was less than a year and a half. And even though there was only a small staff working in the context of that office and in that building, I learned a lot about leadership. I learned a lot about human interaction uh, simply by observing the things that were taking place around me. And one observation that became very clear to me was that secretaries in that office did not last very long before they left. I started to notice the pattern. We'd have a secretary, she'd be there for a little while, and then she'd go. Every few months, the secretary would quit. Every few months, a new secretary would be hired. And one of the more vocal secretaries uh, took the time at one point, in a moment of just transparency and honesty, to just let me know why that was, why all the secretaries quit in that context. And basically, and I, I understood what she was getting at, we had a boss who was impossible to please. You ever meet somebody like that? Do you ever have a boss that's like that or a client that's like that? That's impossible to please. Do you have a family member that's like that? So it's just impossible to please, no matter what you do, you cannot please them. As much as you try, you know, even if uh you know, like I mean, even if you've done everything that they've ever verbalized that they expected of you, you complete that and then they tell you about the one thing they never told you that they expected of you, right? So there are people like that probably in your life, maybe in a work context or a friendship context or a family context, that you feel like you just can't please. And so the secretary in that context had to work closer to that boss than any of us did. And serving in a context like that, it really just took a few months of serving in that kind of context when eventually they would feel so demoralized and so discouraged and so inadequate in their role that they would resign, and they would quit, and that would be it. And I stopped being surprised when employees left. I started to notice the pattern, and it stopped surprising me. It more surprised me at the end when we had a secretary that lasted longer than the other ones. I thought, wow, like, how is she doing this? Like, what is, what is the secret about her personality with the boss's personality that's actually resulting in her, her staying? Because you couldn't please that boss. And I bring that up because imagine if our relationship with God resembled that office. Imagine if your relationship with God resembled that, right? What if he was impossible to please? That nothing you or I ever did could ever please him? What if that was the nature of our relationship with God? Would that be edifying to you? Would that encourage you if there was just nothing you could do to please him? By the way, at one point, that certainly would have seemed like the nature of our relationship with him. And Paul even expresses that sort of concept when you look at Romans 7, verse 5 there, right? What he said was, he says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So God gave us the law. We we were like, I hear you, Lord, but now I'm going to do the exact opposite of everything that that you said, and I'm going to bear fruit for death. Does that kind of fruit please God? Of course not. So you and I, at one point, were experiencing life in a context where it was not even possible for us to please God. That was the nature of our relationship with Him. That before we came to know Christ, we were still living in sin, we were still governed by our sinful passions, we were bearing sinful fruit, we were unable, in that context, to please the Lord. But now... And isn't that a great thought, the fact that we could say, but now, implying that there's something different, right? But now, as those who have been united to Christ by faith, we are quite pleasing to the Father. If you trust in Jesus Christ, if He's your Lord, if He's your Savior, you are quite pleasing to God the Father. Because as He looks at you, Scripture tells us, He sees His Son. As the Father looks at you, He sees the Son. He sees the righteousness of of jesus christ now apart from faith scripture tells us it's impossible to please god you know if you're relying on the works of your flesh if i'm relying on the works of my flesh to please god that's impossible but with faith in jesus christ the father is pleased so trying to keep a a set of laws or rules through our own power that did not please god because we couldn't do it right we couldn't do it perfectly Our false reliance on, or our our false righteousness and our reliance on our efforts to earn His favor. All that was was an offense to His holiness. But now we're told that through Christ we've been released from our captivity to that old system. And we've been set free to serve in the new way of the Spirit. And what that tells us is that at the moment we trusted in Christ, the Spirit of God indwelled us and He's now guiding and empowering our service to God. And we can serve the Lord with joy because we're confident of His acceptance of us through our union with Jesus Christ. Let me say this as we finish up. When you think about these details, now again, I recognize that this is a, a portion of Scripture that's very easy to get lost in the theological weeds if we allow ourselves to. But when you, when you look at this not just from a data capture type mindset. But when you look at this also from, Lord, what does this mean for my relationship with you? Don't you feel like it's such a relief to belong to Christ? Like when I look at a portion of Scripture like this that shows the before and the after of what it's like to know Christ, I actually feel a sense of relief. I feel even a relief to live during this era of history where these things have been worked out. It's a relief to belong to Christ. Our old cycle of self-reliance, that's done. That's over. It didn't work anyway. right? We've been released from our bondage to the law. We've been enabled to bear lasting fruit for God as the Spirit guides us and as the Son empowers us. When you look throughout the Scriptures, we're repeatedly assured that God isn't going to change His mind about us. We belong to Him. We're held forever securely in His loving hand. We are united with Him for all time. And the Scripture tells us that now His power is at work within us and our future is secure in His presence. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for your goodness and for the fact that when we look at a portion of scripture like this we can be reminded of all that you've done for us lord we were trying at one point this was the the goal of humanity to try and please you through our own efforts through keeping the law perfectly something that we didn't have the capacity to do and so In the midst of that, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to keep the law for us, and to die on the cross to take our condemnation upon Himself, and to rise from the grave to share His victory with all who trust in Him, share that victory with all who are united to Him by faith. Lord, we are grateful for these things, and we're grateful for the privilege that it is to be able to read them together as we look at this portion of your Word. Lord, we love you, and we're grateful for the love that you've shown us. Lord, we're grateful for the fact that we are bound to you. You've released us from our bondage to the law, and you've united us to you. We are now bound to you. We are connected to you. We're part of your family forever. And you've accomplished this through the work that your son Jesus Christ did on our behalf. So we're grateful for these reminders today as we start a new year. We pray that our desire and our goal throughout the course of this week, throughout the course of this year, throughout the course of our lives, would be to glorify You and to welcome Your power at work in our lives to do in us and through us what brings You glory. Lord, we pray that You would bear fruit through us. We can't do anything apart from You, certainly nothing that would please You. So Lord, bear fruit from each life gathered in this room, each life that has the privilege to sit under the teaching of this portion of Your Word. We pray, Lord, that we would just bear fruit for You that brings You glory in every context You place us in. And we're grateful for the privilege to do so. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.